Hey guys, welcome back to the OPD podcast. Thank you as always for tuning in. It's another week with just me and Austin this week. We are coming back with our, I say monthly q and I don't know if we do do it every month, but uh, you guys are asking for it. So um, we're back with the monthly Q&A. Thank you for the questions. Uh, it was Austin about the questions this week. Haven't seen them yet, so I'm hopefully I'm not caught off guard with anything uh, crazy. Um, but just quickly before we delve in, Austin, run us down. How are you? What's going on? Uh, nothing new, man. We're just trying to trying to recover. I slowly slowly getting glimpses of being better. You know, every day a little bit a little bit better. Um, got all my tracking. You know, got my my aura ring on. Hey, so, you're joining the Aura Club. How are you liking it so far? Well, good. My intention was to join a lot sooner, but I waited about six weeks to get the damn thing in. Uh, mine took about 10 when I ordered it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, right. So I ordered it a while ago, um, though, though at the end of prep, you know, it probably would have been pretty, uh, pretty dismal anyhow. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess that was probably a really good time to start it though, because I can actually see the trends of like, improvement and sleep and stuff yeah right sure. now it gets better as it goes on as well when it starts giving you more in-depth insights built on data over long term like my aura was popping up i mean i've had mine for months months and months now actually probably maybe four months and it was popping up with some chronotyping data about my sleep um my deep and rem sleep around different times that i've gone to sleep recommended specific sleep cycle phases for me and whatnot which is you know that's that's pretty cool data to dig into based on sort of months of collecting data on sleep so i love stuff like that where did you uh where would you say your rem and deep sleep were at percentage do you oh, remember they're, they are they're now very high so this is something uh, completely unrelated um yeah now they're they're very high so rem sitting at about 35 per night and deep i don't see go below 20 it's usually 25 to 30 gotcha yeah i'm not there i'm better but but my best night <laughs> my best nights is about 21 percent rem and about 17 deep sleep but when i that's when good. i first put it it's not bad really that's not bad considering i mean because when i first put it on i was in single i was like single digits on both yeah, well, I've had deep down at the zero and one percent, but you know, I, in the literature, most things you see, if if you're hitting fifteen percent deep sleep, um, it's pretty good. Yeah, in my spot. Um, but everything that could have been affecting my sleep is out now. So I haven't really spoke about this. Quick update on me: um, I had to put my fat loss phase on hold and everything I was doing um, because basically, when I had my leg surgery, it was from some. Um, um, it was a blood infection basically and they say there's a fairly high chance of um, it coming back well this week it did and I've been in hospital in a bit of a miserable uh, oh. situation with some more um, surgery and whatnot. on the other <laughs> um, but I'm back home now I basically just um, bodybuilding wise I'm sure people like to know I I mean I've, I've come out of diets I've come out of deficit plenty of times before, so I know sort of how how to do it for me. I literally dropped all the fat burners that was on that I was on, which included um, your him being 
um, T3, T4 combo and clenbuterol. Dropped them immediately to pull any sort of systemic stress whilst I was in a state of needing recovery. I pulled my steps down considerably. I pulled out cardio and I upped my calories 500 per day. So it sounds drastic, but I always uh, handle it well. And I'm only two pounds up from my lowest, most depleted weight in a week. That's good though. That's good though. Two yeah. pounds. Really, that's, that's nothing. I'm just a little bit fuller, you know, two. Mm-hmm. And that was like flat as hell waking up at about 196. And this morning I was 198. So I'll keep yeah. up a bit more, but um, for now I need to recover and whatnot. So foot's kind of off the gas there. I'm just going to um, slowly bring calories up and allow some healing to occur and whatnot. But that's why my aura is looking pretty good at the minute. Uh, HRV yeah. down to six, which is the lowest I've ever seen it on the day after uh, the surgery. Uh, but now I've climbed it back up to 25, which obviously isn't very good, but it's all um, a process. Um, resting heart rate upon waking day after surgery was 102. Never had it that high. Uh, yeah. now, now back down to 69 in just a few days. So um, we're on the right track. That's great. Yeah. That's crazy how fast that it turned around though. Well, this is the cool thing about the aura, you know, when it, you can just see in depth all of your autonomic nervous system imbalances just happening in real time before you. Um, yes. If, you know, for a lot of people, it's kind of like they, they look at their sleep and, and steps, but for somebody that actually knows what they're looking at, it's a lot more valuable. Yeah, for sure. And, um, as bodybuilders, it's easy for us to go, yeah, I could train today. I feel pretty good. And then, you you know, when you objectively take a look at the data, especially when you're in a situation where you want to upregulate healing, do you really want to go and cause more inflammation? And then you look at your HRV and it's six and resting heart rate super high. It's like, okay, actually, when you realize how the autonomic nervous system balance works and how controlling your sympathetic drive will affect your physique, you realize that, actually I can do something like eat so many more calories and look, you know, I look better because I filled out and, and I've done absolutely no damage. In fact, two days I ate completely freely over the weekend that I was in hospital and had a couple of meals out with jazz, but literally just from driving up parasympathetic dominance over that time, I was able to bring no detriment to my physique. Whereas if I had gone to the gym and tried to stick to the deficit that I was in, and kept putting in the drugs that again drive up sympathetic stress. I would ultimately look worse, feel worse, heal slower, make less progress over a sort of X amount of time. So controlling yep. the system really is everything. Yep. hundred percent. Um good shit. I yeah. like it. Uh, I don't want to ramble we can, too much. We can, uh, yeah, we'll just get we'll get right into the questions here. Um cool. okay. So right out of the gate here. Thoughts on switching protein calories over for carbs. Will this cause fat gain? Um, Being that protein is more thermogenic, so example, swapping 40 grams of protein for 40 grams of carbs. And this is a off-season scenario she mentioned for extra context. Um, uh, Honestly, probably not. You probably will notice very little. Um, I, I would probably want to know what the total macro macros are though. Um, that would, that would give me a little more context. It could, it could, in all honesty, 
just aid in a little more training performance, which would just offset the, you know, any type of thermogenic effect pretty easily. It's, it's not likely to probably do anything, assuming you're getting the minimum amount of protein you need for muscle protein synthesis and um, recovery. This is a female though. The only thing with females is being, being smaller and their protein's already a little bit lower, I would, I would want to make sure that you're getting at least protein feedings that are going to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis, you know, so you're not going so low that, you know, your meal's like 15 grams of protein. Yeah. And you're not, you know, and you're not getting any loosing content there or not much. That'd probably be my only real concern with that. But, but I mean, uh, there are people that they genuinely just have a little bit better performance with carbohydrates and they, that would upset any of that thermogenic effect, I would imagine. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I don't, I, I, as you said, as long as we have that baseline that the said individual is consuming adequate protein feeding throughout the day to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, in these sort of boluses of protein, I, I don't see any reason to do this. You won't see any body composition benefit. You could most, you will most likely see a potential detriment to your performance. And also consider that protein is the most metabolically expensive macronutrient in a situation that you're in the off season. You know, do you really want to be doing that? Um, I, I, and it's also, you know, the harshest on the GI over time and something that we need to control in the off season. And if we want to be pushing food up, you don't want to have anything causing any more gastric distress than needed. It's not something that I do. I don't think that you'll see any difference visually, but the performance detriment is likely. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, okay. Okay, so... Oh, here's, here's a juicy one for you. Mm -hmm. uh, thoughts on using Proviron as an antidepressant or mood enhancement since could this be a viable option since it's non uh, hepatotoxic is there oh. a time, is there a time limit to usage okay. um, this is just about the only situation that I might see Proviron being a useful <laughs> like uh, I generally consider Proviron to be a useless tool for physique purposes, especially in comparison to the other drugs that we have available in the arsenal. It was originally studied for antidepressants and had a fairly positive clinical outcome. Um, so, yeah, and um, there wouldn't be really a relative time frame, given that, as you say, it's not 17-alpha-alkylated. Um, there possibly may be a minor amount of androgen-mediated sympathetic drive from just those additional non-aromatizing androgens in there. You would also have to make sure that your estrogen is sufficient to keep those two in a good ratio to one another. Um, it's not like you could just pile provirin in and, and, and right. cause HPG actually shut down if that's even possible with some crazy dose of provirin and um, have absolutely no estrogenic component to the stack. But... Yes, but uh, I mean, I'm not an expert on psychology by any means. I suppose it would depend on what the causation of the depression is. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I, I've seen 
I've seen the literature, you know, showing the positive benefit, but, but I, I think what you said at the very end is kind of sums it up. Like, what is your, what's the root cause? And is that the best option to treat the root cause? You know, cause it, antidepressant is a pretty broad category in yeah. terms of, I mean, there's antidepressants that act on so many different neurotransmitters and there's combination therapies that act on multiple things at once. You know what I mean? So to just say, to just see the literature that says it improved mood and then to throw it at your problem, you could totally be missing the boat. Um, so, I mean, there's, and there's no, there are some tests out now uh, that you can actually see neurotransmitter imbalances, at least from like the metabolite aspect. So like your dried urine tests and stuff will show that, you know, uh, to some extent, like serotonin and, and GABA levels and, and all these things. And so I would probably, I truthfully don't even know what the mechanism was in the provider studies. Like, I'm not sure what actually caused it to help. So I couldn't, I couldn't comment on that, but, um, yeah, I mean, hypothetically, I suppose, right? I mean, it seems like it, I mean, hypothetically, it could be an option, but again, I don't know if that's going to be necessarily the best option. No, I think that's a bit of a, uh, losing the forest for the trees situation there. As a, yeah. as a general mood enhancer, yeah, sure, maybe to treat clinical depression, I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. How do you address suspected non-compliance with a client without tarnishing the relationship? That's a good one. Uh, so I assume they mean as a coach, you, you expect they're probably not following the plan. How do you approach them with this without, you know, causing some kind of um, tension or issue or confrontation? I, it's a hard situation. It definitely is. Like, you know, I, I like to think that I like to think that most of my clients and probably all of my clients, I really don't have to worry about this. And they would tell me if they did something off the plan. Um, because they do, you know, normally if something happens and I, I think too, you're going to run into this less as you become kind of an, a higher ticket coach, like in terms of What's your coaching cost, right? Who are you going to attract? Um, you, not that that's going to totally prevent it, but I mean, if you, if if you're fifty dollars per month American, I mean, you're going to run into all kinds of flaky people, right? Because why, why would they care about fifty bucks, you know? Um, versus, you get more. You're going to get a more serious clientele a lot of the time if you're, if you're on a little bit higher end. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I do, what I've done a few times. And this, this seems like a kind of sneaky way for me to kind of figure it out is I will make, I'll make some radical change to the plan that I know should yield a specific result. Like I could, if I suspect that they're not following the plan, um, like maybe let's say probably in a fat loss scenario, right? That's probably the most common one, right? We think that they're eating off the plan a lot or they're, you know, not adhering. I might just drastically reduce calories or even do some kind of like fasting or something just temporarily 
just because I know that that's going to cause their weight to drop. And if I still see at least temporarily, right, even if it's just glycogen and water, I still know that it's going to happen. And that way I can gauge, are they actually even doing what I'm telling them to do? Mm. Um, and now how you present that to them is a different, is a different story. They might be a little suspicious if you just say, I want to cut your calories in half, right? You know, they might, that might not go over well. So you might have to figure out how you're going to present that to them. But I have, I have used that before and, and usually, usually it goes over well. Usually that kind of, I can figure it out that way. But uh, if, if you don't have any problem, just, just asking them, make them, make them log their food or, um, there's ways, there's ways too. even some of the tracking apps, like my fitness where you can get their login information and stuff. And of course they're, they could just not log something in there. Right. But, um, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I'm, I know we all run into it. What do you think? Um, do you know what? Personally, I've never actually had this happen with a client in terms of a client checking in and let's say accuracy of nutrition, they say, 100% a week when you know we know that they'd clearly be in a fairly steep deficit and and they're not losing body fat their measurements aren't changing etc taking into account things like menstrual cycle or any fluctuation or anything you know um, I've never actually had this happen um, in terms of like non-compliance rather difficulty adhering to the plan of course every coach has had that and there's so many strategies but um, like yeah just literally not being able to adhere to the plan and and that can stretch from so simple things like just putting in more flexibility uh to make things maybe slightly less effective but more adherable if that's a word um or you know working on other disordered eating patterns which is where it gets a bit more serious i tend to consult with other uh with, with i say with other with some professionals like amelia thompson on things like that dr amelia thompson who works with few of my clients who's brilliant, but um, I'm getting off track here. In terms of actually working with somebody that says that they are following the plan to a T, but blatantly isn't, I've never had to deal with it. And honestly, it, it, it would be difficult. It would be a difficult subject to preach. I feel like I'd like to just come out and say, you know, uh, with where things are set, it, it is a physiological impossibility that we're not getting the results here. You know, are you, are you not tracking some things like little bites of food through the day or, or something like this? So I suppose I would have to breach the subject, honestly, because I generally do have a policy that I can never bullshit my clients. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's hard. I've, I've never had to think about it, to be honest. Yeah, I would... I'd probably be on the same boat as you. I would personally, I would probably just tell them, Yeah. you know, and this, and this is the thing that I found with any type of confrontations. I hate confrontation. I'm the last, per I don't like it at all, you know, because it's just mentally draining. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it, it, it does, you know, of course you don't want to tarnish your relationship, but what I'll say is just from my experiences, I've gotten more confident in those things because Nine times out of 10, people are actually pretty, they, they receive it pretty well for the most part. Um, you always think that they're going to get, like I say so many things that I think they, 
like, oh man, they're probably going to get upset with me. And they almost never do ever. Yeah. Maybe you know? to give them some perspective in a situation like that, you know, like, like you could say, Hey, you are paying me for a service. And, and if you're not totally honest with me, then, you know, you're wasting your money, your time and my time. So it's not a worthwhile investment, you know, so let's maybe assess how we can, how we can change this program so that you can adhere to it. And then they'd probably say, yeah, you know what? I haven't been doing everything, you know, as well as I could be because when, especially when currency comes into it, people generally think, you know, I'm wasting money. That's, that's not good. Yeah, I agree. You can always put that caveat in there. I'm only saying this because I care about you and want you to get your money's worth and get the best result. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I agree for sure. Uh, okay. Oh yeah. Another juicy one. This might rival the, uh, Proviron question thoughts on myostant inhibitors effectiveness, relevant use on humans versus studies, uh, versus animal studies. So I guess, are they asking, do we actually have anything there? And relevant, was that relevant use on humans versus studies? So, okay. So they're asking, is there any translation basically if, is there any translation into humans from an animal study? Uh, um, I don't know what study they're citing specifically. I mean, there, yeah, there's more than one. Without seeing the study. Because, I mean, some things do like, but you, you have to use context. Like I'll give you an, I'll give an example in a similar, in a similar vein. When we look at Trenbolone, much of the research is either done on rodents or, or cattle right now being a, yeah being an anabolic steroid that works via binding to the androgen receptor, rats collegial muscle tissue generally expresses very low um, amounts and density of androgen receptors, whereas cattle are the complete opposite. They express very high amounts. So again, you'd have to take that into context when trying to make a contextual translation over into humans. Um, so it completely depends on, on the study design and the relative outcome. So that would almost be an impossible question to answer. Like how relevant is it? Well, what mechanism of my statin inhibition are we talking about? And what were the results and what was the steady design, et cetera? Um, yeah. And I don't know. They just say my, it's broad. I mean, there, there's more than one compound that's toted as potentially myostatin inhibiting. So, yeah. well, I could summarize this with saying that nobody listening to this podcast is going to, have access to anything that inhibits any relevant level of mind statin. Um, yeah. so don't worry about it. Uh, drugs like that are certainly uh, the future, uh, but not the ones that we have now. Like, like I don't know how this thing about um, YK11 being a mind statin inhibitor came about when really molecularly it's built like it, it's an anabolic steroid molecule basically built on the backbone of, of Anadrol. So, um, yeah. The best myostatin inhibitor that we have available to us right now is creatine, so um, which does have efficacy in inhibiting myostatin. Um, it's going to be a while before these drugs are on the market, and they're not going to be available to the public. So, and yeah, I don't believe the myth that people, you know, in Q8 have access to these. Like, um, <laughs> you know, if uh, researchers can't get it to work on humans, I don't think Badabadai out of Oxygen Gym has, has, you know synthesized a molecule that <laughs> inhibits big Ramis myostatin either. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that people just don't want to accept the fact that genetically he's far superior than any of us. 
<laughs> I, I just consider this worrying about the minutia. You know, you, we don't need yeah. it. Um, it doesn't exist. It's not in our reach. Forget about it. You know, concentrate on something else. Um, the relevancy thing. You know that you can you can you can argue all day about the relevancy between human and animal studies. Some people absolutely militantly disregard any animal study, uh, which is fine, although they are often considered like the gold standard of drug research. Um, and there are many crossovers, and there are many times that things don't cross over at all. So look at it in context. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not in the camp that disregards animal studies at all, because I think I think we have enough, though it doesn't always translate, I think we have enough understanding of how certain animals metabolize certain things in comparison to humans to at least give us some insight, you know. Um, I, yeah, I don't I'm not, not in that camp, but, um, all right. What do you think about using creatine and HMB in contest prep? Well, I think that's fine. You can, <laughs> I think you can certainly use <laughs> What's that? Jacob Wilson, just enter the room. Someone's yeah. Trying to sell him HMB. Creatine, yeah. HMB, save you money. Crap. Yeah, H, they, the hard part about the HMB too is that is the form free acid and calcium form. And if anyone's actually getting the free acid form, I don't know where they found it. Um, I've seen a little bit of differences in the research between the two, but, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't worry about it a whole lot. Um, I'm not even sure. Maybe they were trolling us. Maybe that's not even a serious question. I don't know. Could be. I hope so. No, they might. They might have It's not a stupid question. People ask about creatine and contest prep all the time because they worry about. Um, yeah, well, that's true. That's true. It's 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 just a constant variable. If you're going to use creatine, just use it all the time. Don't ever stop. You should use it anyway. It's it's brilliant for intracellular swelling. And um, I mean, there's no. I I put it this way: It's like why would you something that could possibly cause. Um, intracellular you know intramuscular fullness and pull pull water into the muscle it's not subcutaneous and why wouldn't you want to use it in contest prep yeah but hmb save you money it's not going to make you watery nah. okay i don't know who they're oh, i guess they're best fat loss combo for Best fat loss combo for fat loss. Okay. While in contest prep, I know you advocate several things together, but in lower dosages than usual, I'm not sure exactly where they got that idea. Um, I guess, yeah, I mean, synergistically you use multiple things together. I'm not sure that my dosages are lower than usual, but, um, but would you be, what would be your perfect fat loss combo for coming in shredded? So, Assuming, you know, we're not talking about nutrition, don't be the jackass that says diet and cardio. I won't do that. <laughs> well, we, can, we can give. I hate that. I that on steroids. Yeah. You about, you know, what was this stuff? Um, hey, training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, right. Several things together. I mean, all that, all that we're doing there is we're hitting different, you know, different mechanisms, different pathways. We can do some kind of something to 
hit beta receptors, something to alpha receptors, something to possibly just uh, hit the thyroidal axis, something to boost basal metabolic rate. Um, and then potentially like, you know, our DHTs have some indirect fat loss potential more or less. Um, I mean, so those are probably gonna be the main things. Um, you could, you could insert thyroidal access, pretty self-explanatory, um, T4, T3, um, Yohimbine through alpha, betas, plimbuterol is pretty common. Um, I mean, if you want to just look at basal metabolic rate in general, I mean, there's, there's always like DNP there if someone wanted to use it, though in contest prep, I don't really like the idea of it. Uh, just because of the water and, and just systemic stress, it just makes things difficult to gauge. And what else we talk about? Oh yeah. And then from, you know, from the AAS side of things, um, yeah, you, there's potential for some kind of indirect benefit, I guess, from like Trimbalone and your DHTs. But, and then the way I guess we could even add in a PPAR, you know, so your Carterine uh, could fit in there if you wanted. Yeah, I mean, and there's some, like, that's just from a chemical side of things. I mean, there's some, like, nuances in there, like some small herbal ingredients and things that may have some efficacy to help. But, I mean, from the chemical side of things, those are going to be your main pathways that we really have access to at this time. Yeah, completely. So, I'll just add on that as well, because you covered that really well. Um in reference to the question, considering the the best fat loss stack, um, unfortunately, this is one of those questions that is highly biologically inter-individual because you have to consider the, the hormonal cascade or the downstream effects of each of these. So what can I use an example? Okay, so you mentioned drugs that affect the thyroidal axis, like T3 and T4. So essentially, we're talking about being hyperthyroid, which is one element of it, which will kick up. BMR, okay, cool. Um, however, that comes with other side effects like um, arresting heart rate increase, therefore driving systemic stress up. Is this something that you need? Is this gonna negatively trend down your HRV, therefore affect your training? Is it gonna make you look flat, Is, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you could be doing that to potentiate uh, resensitization of beta to adrenergic receptors that you use with clenbuterol. Okay, so you've got clenbuterol on top now again stimulant with a very long half-life. Um, it's got a 36-hour half-life, so it's going to be dragging into your sleep and pulling down your deep sleep. Again, pulling down your HRV in combination with the both. What's this systemic stress overall going to do to you and your sympathetic drive, and is that going to benefit your contestant or not? So is this required? Ideally, you'd want to keep stress as low as possible. Your physique will look better for it. Um, again, you know, talking about anabolics, aromatization massively stimulates the growth hormone IGF axes, which will cause greater levels of, of body fat loss. Uh, lipolysis is directly correlated with increases in activation of the aromatase pathway. However, what is this higher dose of testosterone going to do to your androgen ratios or your blood work? Um, all these downstream things. Um, and again, putting in things like DHTs or, or any harsh androgen, you know, we have androgen receptors in fat cells, things like trembolone are going to affect them. Again, systemic stress. Do you need it? Do you want that? 
how long can you last with that? Because there's going to come a point where you are completely overreached. Is that going to be four weeks out? You're flat, your physique looks like shit, and there's no coming out of that hole, right? So you're going to have to monitor your own response to this stack and build it in such a way that the sympathetic drive or any other hormonal cascade or downstream effect of the stack isn't putting you in a position that's going to drive autonomic nervous system balance into the floor, therefore negatively affect training, which will therefore bring down expenditure, make you tired all the time, ruin your sleep, and therefore ruin your physique, and you won't come in on the day, right? So considerations have to be made for each individual. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. We talked about that when you were talking about um, watching your aura ring in terms of, you know, your REM and deep sleep. And that's just a component that people miss is that while, you know, you're, you're very minimal increase in BMR from clenbuterol isn't really that beneficial when it's causing massive amounts of systemic stress, no. you know, everything um, else is more difficult and you look worse for it. It's a delicate yeah. balance. And it's the same, and it's no different than what we've talked about with just PDs in general, right? Just yeah. in terms of like finding that sweet spot where you are getting the the benefit without, you know, without creating too much negative. So yeah, no, I I agree, hundred um, percent. And I have no hesitation with any people. Like when I work with someone, and then I I pull something out for that reason, they kind of freak out. Oh my gosh, I don't have this this quote unquote fat burner anymore. But they always end up looking better. Look better, you know, perform better every yeah. time. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. So I doesn't. I'm I'm with you for sure. Um, okay, I'll let you hit this one first, then, since I last couple. Um, and we've talked about this before. Any benefit to using T4 with T3 over just T3? And also, when coming off was well, two questions. Also, when coming off T3, do you personally like to approach this? taper versus coming off straight off okay any benefit to combination therapy yes absolutely um it's not really fully understood but t4 has actions outside of just like the metabolic rate like some mechanisms within the brain especially so there's peripheral tissues that t4 acts in you take an exogenous form of t3 you're not going to have any t4 so the potential long-term side effects are are unknown here, so I just wouldn't, uh, you know, it seems safer to use the, the T3 with the T, uh, the T4 with the T3. Just bear in mind that, um, of course, that's that's an additive effect. So don't say, okay, to put me fairly hyperthyroid to get benefit from T3, I usually take 50, so I'm going to take 50, but then I'm going to add 100 T4 on top. Well, you know, you've probably just doubled your, your thyroidal stimulation then, so just bear in mind. Um, in terms of coming off, I don't see any efficacy to, to tapering unless you're at some kind of asinine, insanely high dose. I might drop it down to a physiological level, um, wherever yeah. that be for you. Again, that's highly individual. Like I, the individuality between thyroid dosing is unbelievable that I've seen. But um, yeah, just maybe whilst we figure out your new maintenance and then drop it. But there's no point because you're just tapering down an exogenous substance that needs to be completely removed for thyroidal axis recovery to occur, which usually happens in two weeks, uh, three weeks at the latest in some individuals. There's just, there's just no need. Just drop it out. The, you know, this crazy rebound that people talk about from, from dropping thyroid drugs doesn't happen. Drop it out, 
get you new maintenance. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm actually basically going to completely echo the answer um, that unless, unless the dosing is just uh, ridiculously high, um, I wouldn't. And, and here's the thing, unless you're hyperthyroid, like you're actually in a state of hyperthyroidism. And then, like you said, I might drop you to just a normal physiological range and then pull it. Um, but ideally you're not hype. You're not hyperthyroid because ideally I think it's worth mentioning too, that the goal of, you know, the goal of using these exogenous thyroid drugs and prep is to just simply put you in normal physiological range, right? We're just simply replacing what's down regulated from yeah, the so deficit. It can be used to simply just control those negative metabolic actions, but you know, you can be very slightly hyperthyroid or as hyperthyroid as, as you choose if you want to create a greater synergy with, with other um, drugs that stimulate beta 2 adrenergic receptor expression like clenbuterol. Um, so it's up to the individual, I guess. It, it will yeah. be the effects of clen if you are hyperthyroid. Um, it won't yeah, and it's, if you're just logical. But again, yeah, it depends on the goal of the drug. And it going kind of back to the last question in terms of creating systemic stress, like you can, you can push the thyroid dose a little bit above normal physiological range, you know, eh, slightly, but at a point, if you are clinically hyperthyroid, um, that's, that's going to cause problems, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're just creating more stress. Um, uh, Oh, here's a doozy. So how would you set up your pre-bed routine in terms of nutrition and hydration? Um, what do you do after waking up? Oh, this is two questions. And then what do you do after waking up if you train within one to two hours in the morning? So fast for fasted training. Mm. Um, okay, well, hydration-wise, I'm assuming they're probably asking – so they're not getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom a million times uh, that I'm guessing um, mess with experiment. Cause there's too many, there's a lot of variables there in terms of like what's your electrolyte status and body fat, those two things will, and what's your pre, you know, what do you, what type of meal composition are you having at night? Um, if you have, if you have a little more body fat and you're in a surplus and you have adequate electrolytes and you have some type of carbohydrate in your last meal. I mean, just those things alone are going to make you a lot less likely to wake up and, and pee all night long, you know, versus if you're low body fat and even if you have adequate electrolytes and you're having, but you're having, a, you know, some type of smaller meal, I mean, the water is going to go through you regardless. There's just nowhere for it to go. There's nothing, there's nothing for it to cling on to. There's no carbohydrate for it to cling to. There's no adipose. I mean, there's just it's it's gonna go through you. So you're probably gonna probably gonna want to taper off the water a little bit earlier in that case. Um, I mean, I know how it goes in prep. It's just and the thing is, I I'll do that. I'll I'll cut off water a couple hours before bed and just basically sip on it. And I'm still perfectly hydrated by the time I go to bed because I've been drinking all day. Mm -hmm. You know. Uh, you're not going to be dehydrated that quick. Aldosterone's levels aren't going to be altered in a couple hours. Or e and even by the time I wake up, 
in the morning, I'm not severely dehydrated or anything. Um, so yeah, I would just gauge it. I would experiment with it. If you had to pull back a little bit before bed, that's fine. Um, in terms of nutrition, yeah, there are extremely large feedings right before you go to bed could potentially alter your sleep. Um, I, I think we've actually spoke about that before. Um, there are people too that have like GERD or acid reflux issues that can exacerbate those. So again, experiment with it. Um, some people just do better with having a little gap between their last meal and going to bed. Uh, you can, and if you're really into tracking, you can literally track your sleep, try it both ways and just track your sleep markers, see what happens. Um, but yeah, I think we've, we chatted about that a little bit in terms of some people simply do sleep better and have not only just, um, perceived sleep, but also like if they're actually tracking their sleep markers, something like Aura Ring, you know, for example, they will have better, more restful sleep if they're not cramming a bunch of food right before they go to bed. Mm. So, and I know, and I knew you've talked about that before. Um, so yeah, there's that question. You can, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Uh, not really. I just completely agree with you with what you said about like nocturia, just tapering down water in the evening is a good idea. Um, in terms of food prior to bed, I, I would consider the, the meal composition and the fact that gastric acid secretions drop very rapidly when you sleep. Right. So um, if you're eating something like a Greek yogurt with like some fruit or something, you could eat that close to bed and you'd be fine. If you're eating maybe a, a red, a, a high protein red meat meal or something like this, it's generally, I would generally advise to keep it three hours out from bed because Again, digestion of food, it, I know that you have to be in a rest and digest mode, but, but eating is generally a sympathetically driven activity. You don't want to do that near bed and have digestion going on. Um, so, yeah, I would just consider the last meal. And again, like, like Austin said, you can track your, your sleep quality and um, compare. That's it. You know, it's funny you mentioned the meal composition too, because I, I intentionally did this with a client recently. I switched from a more complex, I guess that's probably not even the correct term for it, a meat protein source that digested slower and obviously required more, more acidic environment to dairy, which does not, and their sleep improved at night. Yeah, I've seen a lot of times with clients. Yeah, that's why I, I truthfully, 100% transparent. I prefer eating relatively close to bedtime, but that's actually my only dairy meal during the day. Yeah. Is, and I, I genuinely notice a difference if I have like a, a grass fed beef meal, or a, you know, a heavy meal like that with a bunch of vegetables and stuff that's just extremely complex and takes forever to digest. And it takes, and it takes an extremely aesthetic gut environment to digest versus. I'll do, you know, like those little, little goofy jello and Greek yogurt parfait meals that I made in prep. Yeah. Um, I would do those at night because they were filling, but they digested really easy and didn't bother my sleep as much. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's uh that's another good point. Um, he mentioned 
what to do upon waking if they're trained fasted. So what to do after waking up if you train within one to two hours um, and you're fasted. Well, I mean, nothing really. Just hydrate, get electrolytes and fluid, and uh, get on with your workout. I mean, you can whatever kind of pre-workout supplementation that you want to do, you could. Um, I don't know if you're training fully fasted or if you're training – you're training with like an intra workout drink, but then, I mean, there's nothing really inherently special that you need to do. I don't think, um, personally, I mean, I've done it. I train like that. So not regularly, but, uh, sometimes, especially on a weekend or something, if I have something else I need to do, I'll train like that in the morning. I have no problems. Um, just essentially hydrate and get sufficient electrolytes and, uh, any type of pre-workout supplementation that you might want. And I, think you'd be good to go yeah totally agree with that i wouldn't try and get any food in within that time period if you use an intra maybe just start sipping that maybe 15 minutes before the meal and uh, before training and that's it yeah yeah i agree i agree um okay now here's one more juicy one it looks like oh there's a couple good ones on here okay so just heard on a podcast some recent research showing AIs at any level are causing lesions in circulatory system. Uh, okay. I don't know if you've seen this study. I'm going to say that I have not, but what I will say is that I would be curious to know if it is actually the AI itself or the chronically low estrogen levels, because I do know that I had some research from, uh, Dr. Serrano showing um, basal, like some some damage to the vascular system with chronically low um, estrogens. So, to me, it, I, I would like I said I would question: Is it actually a product of you know the aromatase inhibitor itself, or is it a product of having chronically low estrogen levels? And it's actually it's really easy. I mean, this research has been around a long time because this is actually a risk that a lot of women in menopause run. Mm -hmm. um, that's, it's common. It's super common in menopause, vasomotor, um, vasomotor symptoms and having, you know, cardiovascular issues because of that. And of course, at that point, if, if they're, you know, perimenopause or postmenopause, they likely have low estrogen levels, uh, among other things. And, um, yeah. So, so again, I, I'd probably be curious to see if there's what I would like to know is that do those, do those things still happen in absence of the AI with just simply having low estrogen? And I would say from what I know, they, they probably do. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I'm not going to comment on this literature because I haven't read it and that would yeah. be be unprofessional. Um, I'm no fan of AIs or at least proactive AI use as our listeners will know. Um, but to be fair, the majority of the AI research that I do read are on natural individuals or even hypogonadal individuals that have very little aromatization anyway. And, you know, you will see things like bone mineral, uh, bone demineralization, for example, simply from low serum estrogen. So it, it, there, there's going to be a great amount of context, but I will aim to read this literature if, if the person asking the question could uh, send it over and then we'd be able to discuss it further. Yep, hundred uh, percent. Okay, the last question on here is: Well, we've pretty much already answered this. Does it make sense to use Proviron and Masteron in the same 
blast or same context? And the answer would probably be no. No, if you're trying to balance out androgen to estrogen ratios, I just find provirin to be very weak, expensive, and fairly useless, to be honest, in terms of relative yeah. just, effectiveness yeah. compared to something like a Masteron. Just use the Masteron. Yeah, yeah, agreed. There is one more question. This is the very last question. It's nothing too groundbreaking. So we'll, we'll hit this one, and uh, we'll wrap it up. Um, Oh, okay. So best advice transitioning to a cruise from using a total of one and a half grams weekly, uh, how to best hold condition strength, mainly what else, what should I do with food? Should I start slowly titrating it up or keep it the same? Context is I'm 240 pounds, not stage lean, um, but relatively good body fat. They stay eight to 9%. If they're 8% at 240, they're pretty big. Um, know how to <laughs> yeah so i would probably still want more context but just off a general sense no there's no it's if you're using long esters well for one it's already going to taper itself mm -hmm. and secondly there's not really anything different you can do you don't need to titrate up food i mean as long as you're getting sufficient protein um i would say Honestly, the biggest thing would be to maintain some semblance of training progression. That's probably your best, you know, that's probably one of the most important tools at that point is people, they automatically flip the switch on their, their training mindset and you can start altering their training. And I think that's probably the last thing that you would want to do. Um, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say sufficient protein intake maintenance to a surplus of calories and resistance training and you are not going to lose any muscle unless you are physiologically way beyond the limit that is capable to be held by your cruise dose i don't know what the cruise dose is but i very much doubt that um you're going to lose some blood volume intracellular swelling and whatnot just from pulling drugs down don't mistake that for muscle tissue nothing's going to happen yeah and we've seen and you and I have both seen this too, just the reduction in systemic stress training performance actually begins to increase in some people um, from pulling a lot of these, a lot of this stuff out, mm -hmm. especially if you've been blasting for a while and you're kind of getting in that uh, toxic for lack of better words, you know, state. Um, so yeah, don't do anything. Just keep training. Keep training hard. And you mentioned surplus too. That's a good, the one little caveat in there is I would just be cautious. If you, if you do need to lose body fat, I would not try to attack that immediately after dropping dosages, at least, no. you know, at least get in, get in a homeostatic state and hold that for, you know, at least a, a few weeks or so or more would even be better yeah. Um, yeah. before you drop, uh, before you start dropping calories. That would probably be the only caveat is a lot of people, they will push the end of their blast really hard. You know, they're eating a lot of food to try to exploit the supplementation and they, they put on a little more body fat than they want. And so as soon as they come down to cruise, then they immediately want to shed the body fat off. Yes. Now that is not a situation where you're going to, that you could potentially lose some of that tissue um, or at least a little bit of your progress, you know, so that would probably be the only stipulation i guess yep completely agree with that man absolutely cool yeah that's it
that's all the questions. Those are some good ones, though. There's a few good ones in there. A lot of good questions. Awesome. So thanks, guys, for the questions. Um, I hope that uh, the discussion was good. I'm going to go to bed. I'm absolutely not. Yep. <laughs> yep. I'm going to get a, yep. a sleep in, back in the hospital in the morning for a draining. Sounds good, doesn't it? Um, oh, that sounds cool. awful. Have you ever seen you a 14-gauge needle? Oh, yeah, 14 gauge needles, uh, like a that's like what they drain, um, like cavities with like a knee cavity or something that has yeah, fluid in it. Yes, so that's what I can get drained with out of the, out of the quad intramuscularly. Um, that's shit that that's like uh, you can put your pinky down the hole, pinky finger down. <laughs> sure. you can see down it. It's crazy. I was like, you know, you're doing that. <laughs> and you just sit there, no, no pain relief, and they. These people, they're brutal. It's like they just dartboard it. I'm like, whoa, that's not yeah. what shots <laughs> Dude, it's it's hilarious. It's hilarious because I I've been on self-administering TRT for so long. Like a lot of TRT when they're prescribed, some doctors will require you, at least here in the states, require you to come in and and get the shot. But I've always just, you know, I've been prescribed, and then I've always just given myself the shot, and it's like you're so used to it. But then when you go into the, the doctor and you see like how they handled needles, you're like, Holy fuck. <laughs> like calm down. Yeah, right. You're going to hurt somebody with that. Yeah. So back in for that in the morning. So try and sleep. Up and, um, get that. <sighs> um, thanks guys for listening as always. And thank you for the questions interacting with us. We, we both really appreciate it. Uh, we'd also appreciate if you could take a look at the sponsor links below and if you're going to buy anything, use our codes and whatnot. We would appreciate that. It helps keep this podcast alive. So if you guys do like the podcast, please support by using the sponsor links and the codes below. So from me and Austin at the OPD Podcast, thank you for listening. And we'll see you guys all next time.